Hello and welcome to episode 379 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the 20 win in August, Seattle Mariners. There we go. Wow. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48. And what have you done for me lately, Seattle Seahawks? (laughs) Wow. How quickly, how quickly we move on. I actually should have said the first place in the AL West, although it's not as exciting now that they are into a tie. Hold on. I have to to turn on the Pelton cast bat signal, the uh, taco time neon cactus that I have here above me. There we go. Now the podcast has started. Unfortunately, it's not behind you on the background, which would be really ideal if that were the case. But, uh, you know, we don't post the the video that often anyway. In an actual radio station. There you go. That's that's what that is. In fact, wow, if we ever had a radio show, if Talking Taco Time ever had a radio show, (laughs) by the way, somehow even less likely than the Pelton cast having a radio show. Talking Taco Time. K U O W, PeltonCast at gmail.com. The line's open. <laughs> Talking Taco Time will host a weekly radio show. It'll be syndicated from here all the way down to Kelso. You know, <laughs> it'll be syndicated from as far north as Bellingham, as far east as where is it, Wenatchee right now? Oh, yeah. yeah. As far south as Kelso Longview and as far west as I don't know. The I'm not sure what the f- westernmost location on the Olympic Peninsula is. I would guess Port Angeles. Forks. But Forks? I don't it? think I I have been through Forks last weekend for the for the first time in my life, and there was no taco time. Let me tell you, I could have really? used the taco time. Not a lot of food available at 9 p.m. on a Saturday, so could've because every taco time everything that was open was crowded. Instead, I ate at Thriftway dinner on Saturday what? night. Thriftway? <laughs> yes. The Forks Thriftway. Wow. So shouts to Miss Thriftway. That is dire. <laughs> well, this week, as you may know, marks the start of football season. We are going to be previewing an actual football game that counts in the standings, sort of. Uh, I don't know if there really are standings in college football, but involving the Washington Huskies, but it's also another season. One that we talked about last week. One that has me legitimately excited for the fact that it is now com- full on fucking fallout. There, oh, yeah, it's fall. Yeah, it's just rainy. It's dark early, uh, but the upside of that is the hops are the freshest wow. they are ever going to be. It is fresh hop season, and our friends at Two Beers Brewing have the first fresh hop beer that I saw at the Beer Junction when I went. I was went looking for an IPA today. I figured we were going to continue our search for Seattle's best IPA, but now that it's fresh hop season, this is on hold. It's on pause. Wow, on until pause. the conclusion of fresh the hop hops, season. They're fresh. I love that this beer is literally just called Fresh Hop. <laughs> they, look, they they know what their you know their target audience wants to hear. Uh, this hyper seasonal IPA. Another thing their audience wants to hear is a two beers brewing tradition not to be missed. A brewer's road trip provides us with some of the first hops of the Yakima Valley hop harvest. The result is an intoxicatingly aromatic IPA that is new and exciting every year. Uh, The hops here are Citra, Amarillo, Cascade, and Fresh Whole Cone Centennials. Wow. From the fresh hop region of Washington State, 
Because of our extensive beer making knowledge, I have no idea what whole cone means as opposed to not whole cone. But... Oh, wow. The cones, they're whole. I'll see if hops, I can tell. The hops are fresh and the cones are whole. I'll, I'll let you know if I can taste this. Is, this is also, this is the first fresh hop that you've seen. So this is the freshest hop. Exactly. It could not possibly get any fresher than this. All right, our toast this week, we start with coming back to Northeast Seattle Little League, which sadly was eliminated from the Little League World Series on back-to-back one-run losses. First one nothing in the extra innings to Needville, Texas, then 2-1 to El Segundo, California. El Segundo went on to beat Needville, Needville for the U.S. title, and then the international champs from Willemstead, Curacao, to win the Little League World Series. So that was that was how close Northeast Seattle Little League was doing it, to doing it. A 2-1 loss to the eventual champs, who also won the final by one run. Wow. All right, all this also this week... We're wishing a farewell to Jonas Donskoy, Donskoy, who announced his retirement after missing the entire 2022-23 NHL season due to a concussion suffered in the preseason. The inaugural member of the Kraken played 75 games in 2021-22 before that concussion, ranking sixth on the team with 20 assists. And then, this is not technically a toast, but that brings us to your favorite part of the podcast. We haven't had this in a while, I think. It's a listener email. Wow, okay. And it comes from the Iowa listener, Nathan Hello. Holmes, new member of the Pelton Cast Fantasy League. Who is that? Hey, Nathan Holmes. Nathan Holmes. Okay. Hey guys, just wanted to check in as the Iowa listener after there all the go. talk about my probably a bit less than fine adopted state. I started listening to the pod in 2019 when I thought I was moving to Seattle before the pandemic and a failed relationship canceled those plans. I'm not entirely sure why I'm still listening when none of the local information <laughs> applies to me anymore, but it's one of my favorite things to listen to every week. There we go. <laughs> I did want to weigh in now that the state of Iowa has come up so much between conference realignment and Caitlin Clark talk. <laughs> Despite go. Iowa City and Des Moines being lovely, fairly progressive cities, I can It's confer- actually, it's, hold on, as your resident Iowa expert, that one's called Des Moines. Did I call it Des Moines? Yes. No, that that one, the one Washington in Iowa. Man. I know you went to Mount Rainier High School. You're, you've did. got Des Moines on the brain. But uh, yeah, the one the one in Iowa is called Des Moines, actually. Anyway. I, thought, I thought I did it right, but it's tough when I'm reading. Uh, <laughs> reading and to... talking at the same time? <laughs> yeah. It's harder to pronounce stuff when you're reading it. I've got a lowly like podcast host. I can't read and talk. <laughs> I can confirm pretty much every stereotype Tristan has mentioned about, Thank actually, you. I'm sorry, Tristan has mentioned there we go. about football fans and the state's general obsession with college athletics and tradition. I've talked to people I'd otherwise consider completely reasonable who would prefer to continue watching 14-10 IO results than anything even approaching offensive competency, regardless of how it would impact win-loss record. If y'all ever make a trip out, though, for games, let me know. I have a list of restaurants and breweries that should be prioritized. So... Regards, Nathan Holmes. There we go. I had no idea that there... Did you know there was an Iowa listener? I did not know that specifically. Look, My we're old... big in the Midwest. Nebraska, Iowa, the Plains states. I don't know if... Is there a... We, we're definitely in Missouri. I don't know if that counts as a Plains state exactly. I don't know if we have any listeners in... The listener in Kansas. We haven't cracked Seattle yet. <laughs> One of these days. One of these days. My favorite part about it is that he started listening to the Pelton cast to prep for moving to Seattle as like, this is what you should do, like to to get acclimated to the culture of the city. 
I, I would love to know if we could get a follow-up email or, or tweet from Nathan Holmes. Like, how did you first come across the Pelton cast then? <laughs> well, you were not in Seattle. So we'll, we'll stay tuned. We'll check back on that one. I have some perspectives. I think the Big Ten is about, I think, I think, I mean, this, the SEC, right? The SEC was sort of known as like a defensive conference for a long time. And I think that's changed over time, right? You remember Alabama was always like, oh, Alabama, like one game defense or whatever. They never have a good quarterback. And then over time, everybody kind of, things always trend in the direction of offense. And I don't I, know if they always trend in the direction of offense. I would say they generally trend in the direction of offense. But I think what happened with, was, you know, number one, the SEC, like, you know, Alabama, it's not good enough for them to just be okay. Like they are not, they do not view things like Nathan Holmes is saying Iowa fans do. They don't care about the means. They just want to know that they won the national championship. So when other teams won the national championship with wide open passing attacks, then Alabama, including, uh, did Auburn win the national championship? With Cam Newton. Yeah. Yeah. So like when. And then again, I think they won twice. When your little brother. Championship with Auburn as well. He was not there. He won it with Louisiana state as it turns out. Uh, Uh, but when little brother is having success with an offensive approach, that's number one. And number two, I think is their proximity to like, they're a little more intermixed. I would say with the big 12 than the, the big 10 is, even though the big 10 has schools in, in Iowa, big 10 and big 12, both have schools in Iowa. Is that fair? Uh, no, it's not actually. Oh, okay. um, I, I think that the big, I think there's going to be, I'm predicting this is a long-term prediction. I'm predicting a more West Coastification of Big Ten football. And I think that over time, as, as these schools like Oregon, like USC, um, I mean, even UW right now, right? As the offense of these schools becomes ingrained into Big Ten football, I think over time, those schools are going to look more like us than we're going to look like them. That's possibly and, true. And I, it'll, it'll only take one or two, right? I mean, I mean look, like, it's Ohio, not like Ohio State State's already offense yeah. isn't bad, but Michigan is the one where it's sort of like Michigan still is a very, very good program that is running kind of like an old school system. Yeah, well, guess what? Jim Harbaugh was doing that on the fucking West Coast. It's true, I mean, it's true. and it was successful on the West Coast. It was, but but there's going to be it'll take a couple of schools where it's all of a sudden like Iowa now is pass heavy or whatever, right? Like there, there's something is going to change. It'll be kind of like one by one, and all of a sudden. I think the Big Ten will be known a little bit more, or it'll be a little bit less about like there might not even be a Big Ten style of play. It's like saying like there's an NFL style. Of play I guess there isn't. You know what the? I mean, no, no, there's there is a, not like th- a, there is a little bit of like okay, the NFC North teams are kind of like this, right? Or like the AFC North teams always sort of like have harder hitting players, and they have these old school rivalries or whatever. But like ultimately. But also the Green Bay Packers had Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. You probably have a little more control over it at the college level. It's a little less dependent on personnel and more on coaching philosophy. I mean, the other factor I probably should point out here that the listener probably has already angrily said out loud is the SEC happens to play in the South where the weather is very nice through the football college football season as opposed to in the Big Ten. Weather is a much bigger factor in November. No, it's, I mean, your ability I, to, no, to succeed passing the ball outdoors. Considering that, but like, I still ultimately think that it's going to be, it's going to look more like that. 
to also fact check us, uh, Auburn lost the second national championship game they appeared in under Gus Malzahn as head coach. Oh yeah, Gus Malzahn, that's right. That was 2013. Who did they play? Who did they play in that BCS championship? That's a great question. They played Florida State. And a quarterback named Jameis Winston was the offensive MVP of that game. It's funny that it feels like an eternity ago that Florida State was capable of playing in a national championship game. I mean, they beat they beat Oregon in the first one. That was the the first CFP. And and the the... one that they won, Cam Newton beat Oregon. Oh yes, yes, of course. I'll toast that again. (laughs) Our Big Ten rivals. All right, with that, I guess we've come to your favorite segment. Oh wait, before we do your favorite segment, I wanted to do a little bit of extra keeping it one fifty. Oh, really? I went to Costco earlier today, and I just have to remark, A, how different... Have you been to Costco recently? It's been a couple months since I've been inside. A couple months? Yeah. I don't Wow, go to, you're going to want to get Costco that frequently. Costco on the docket a little bit more often than that. It's an incredible experience. Okay. But I want to comment just how different the Costco food court looks over time. It is such a rapidly changing thing, the Costco food court. And the newest addition to the Costco food court that I saw today. Strawberry soft serve ice cream. Interesting. Everywhere. It's a little interesting because this would have been, I would have seen this as a seasonal thing coming in for the summer. I think this is here to stay though. So you could do strawberry. You could get chocolate sauce on it. You can get more strawberries on your strawberry soft serve. I believe that's advanced. Uh, can I swirl the strawberry soft serve? Does not appear that you could swirl. So it's I, a, it's a separate addition to the traditional vanilla and chocolate options, as opposed yes. to replacing one of those, like when they have the strawberry frosty at Wendy's, and you don't have the vanilla option. I I personally, anytime that things are swirled, that's what I want. Right? Oh, give me give me swirl or give me death. It is is basically my motto, but. It does not appear that you could swirl it, but getting getting the the strawberry sauce on a strawberry soft serve. So, I, where do you stand on the Wendy's strawberry frosty? Bro, had it the last time I went. Where do you? If you had to rank the three different, no, I think there's peppermint too. Actually, Wendy's is really exploring the studio space here. But there's, let's say that there, we'll comment on these three: chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. If you had to rank those frosties. I would go strawberry, although I can see that that might be because of the novelty. I typically, when it's vanilla or chocolate, will go vanilla because something about it feels a little less, I don't know if it's less sweet, but like the the chocolate frosty. like (laughs) To have your drink be ice cream? Oh, look, that also is advanced. Uh, It's one of my favorite. It's someone who does not drink soft drinks whatsoever. It's one of my favorite things about Wendy's that I'm not, it can do a combo without having to get something I'm not that excited about drinking anyway, when I'd rather just have water. Uh, so, but I would go, the chocolate, I feel like it it sticks on my teeth more. Does that make sense as a description? Okay. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. So I would go strawberry, vanilla, chocolate, and then peppermint, like a huge gap below those. Wow, really? I don't, like, I don't like peppermint as a flavor. Oh my God. You don't like fall and you don't like peppermint? <laughs> I know. For for people like me, normal human beings, we are riding <laughs> high seasonally. Like literally the 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 month flips to September. I'm excited about 
like you mentioned that it's fall now in Seattle. I'm happy about that information. You're the one who coined August being the Sunday scaries of months, which by it the way, we're is, still in August. It is the Sunday scaries of months because school is starting. Life is coming at you after that. I'm not saying that's not true, but sometimes once those things start, you're happy to be there. Does that make sense? I suppose. There's a, there's a, a comfort to the routine of getting into it. Being able to put on like, I don't know, I just, I I'd fetishize like, fall weather i love storms but like let's say that you get home from the husky game you throw on sweatpants and a purple uw hoodie after they've just defeated whatever stanford um uh, always weirdly and then you lay in the bed and you watch pac-12 futurally big 10 after dark for the next four hours that is an amazing experience snl is just starting like it's getting darker the darkness is good sometimes that's what I, I've tried to explain to you. To see the good, you also have to see the darkness. I don't dispute that part of it, but that doesn't mean I have to enjoy the darkness. Uh, SNL isn't coming back, by the way, is it? There, there is still a writer's strike. Oh, shit. I'm not saying this year, but in general, this is, yes. this is a, an annual thing. Yes. Well, I didn't even think about that. Do you think they'll do it without writers? No, I don't think they will. not going to be on. They didn't last season, did they? They just ended the season. Oh, when the strike happened? I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I or maybe it was no, I guess over it, the summer. You're right. That that was that was unrelated. Maybe I'm thinking of a different year. Huh? <laughs> I've really given you something to think about here. <laughs> but the fall is a great season. So for us, but also I love fall flavors, right? Pump I made pumpkin muffins earlier this week. Right. I am all in on this. And then it naturally leads into peppermint. And then the moment it becomes December 26, I hate my life for three months. All right. I'm giving you an L on this one. Uh, on May 2nd, the show went on an indefinite hiatus due to the Writers Guild of America wow. strike. I had no idea. I thought the yeah, I mean, season was, just ended. It was very close to the end of the season. So it did not throw things off that dramatically. But I did remember it correctly that we did not get the Pete Davidson, Kieran Culkin, and Jennifer Coolidge episodes. Wow. None of them. Which I wait, didn't Kieran Culkin host it earlier in the season? Am I misremembering that? Maybe that was the year. <laughs> you think before. they're gonna run it back two times in <laughs> a year? It like was have... like Eddie Murphy when he was the host every episode. I, I they were like Culkin's the permanent host. He must have hosted in season 47 because I remember Kieran Culkin coming on and he showed the thing of him like when Macaulay hosted it when he was a kid. Yeah, I guess that was wow, that was November that 2021. Yeah. Huh. Okay. It feels like yesterday. All right. With that, it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariner's hot takes coming at you. This is a pro management take. Oh, no. They rarely heard on the Pelton cast pro management take. I got invited to the Mariner's game tomorrow to sit. This is this is Wednesday day game. The, the death cop. Cobby for for cutie t-shirt game correct sitting in the owner's Did, suite hold, hold quick question quick pause here yes. uh they were doing this promo during the broadcast on monday night who do you think is the member of the broadcast crew most likely to listen to death cap for cutie oh i man my initial instinct was ryan Ruland smith but then I, I think it's aaron goldsmith i think it's aaron goldsmith too yeah i i jen mueller was the one doing the promo and i gotta say I didn't get the vibe that Jen Mueller is a big death cap listener. That she was familiar. Yeah, Aaron's Gold, Aaron Goldsmith, definitely. He's 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 Mumford the Sons before. But like, <laughs> the, 
they have the person who does i i don't know what her name is who does the sort of like about the stadium thing piper shaw who is also the the on ice reporter i don't know what you call it in the nhl but oh interesting that role she i went and looked at her instagram or her twitter or whatever is also a musician of some kind so, that is correct. One of her I, I songs was played at a cracking game last year. Really? Wow. You yeah, have this a, a lot deal. of information about Piper Shaw. I, she also I thought this... I was a wealth of Piper Shaw information. I didn't even know her name. She also does the store broadcast. So. Does she really? Yeah. Where did Piper Shaw come from? Uh, somewhere in the upper Midwest. Okay. The hockey probably, part of the Midwest. Probably Iowa. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway... <laughs> That's the most derailed we've ever been in a hot take. <laughs> I got invited to the Mariners game tomorrow to sit in the owner's suite. And I have to tell you, this invite could not have come at a better time. If you recall correctly, way back in June, in the olden days of Mariners baseball, I had a chance of getting tickets. So long ago, the Huskies weren't even in the Big Ten yet. I, I had a chance. This wasn't even Big Ten country. I had a chance to sit in the Mariners suite if one of my children was champ in the champ of the camp. Right. And their failure was beautifully destined for me. Because <laughs> back then, I said, I've got a few things to say to ownership. So that would be great if that were to happen. And now, I've got a few things to say to ownership. So that's great for that to happening. And ownership is there i will give them a firm handshake and a job well done on this season here we are on the cusp of september and the mariners are sitting in first place in the american league quest and it's impossible to remember what is the pelton cast golden rule uh you know you don't know how you'll feel about something until it actually happens it is impossible to remember the people we were back in May, June, and some parts of July because we know deep down that baseball is a long season. Baseball is not a sprint. You do not make the playoffs in May. You do not make the playoffs in June. But as fans, we judge things so harshly at every single aspect of the season. And ownership said, wait Wait on this. Things are going to develop over time. And I looked at Julio Rodriguez's stats earlier this week. He's played almost precisely the same amount of games that he played last year. And his stats, this is a down year for Julio Rodriguez. We thought for most of the season are almost precisely the same as they were a year ago. So instead of hemming and hawing, of getting so upset about every individual loss that happens in May or June, we have to remember Baseball is a long season. There are two eight-game win streaks on the horizon. Julio Rodriguez is going to bounce back. So I'm reminded. Can you make the playoffs in the first quarter? No. Can you make the playoffs in the second quarter? No. Can you make the playoffs in the third quarter? No. Can you make the playoffs in the fourth quarter? I assume I'm supposed to say thing like, hell yeah. And that is why, as long as the Mariners are first place in the American League West on the Pelton cast, 
they get the hammer on this podcast. Seahawks, Huskies, or nothing. The Mariners, provided they are in first place, are the axe. So we will see you at the end of this podcast to talk about the Mariners. Because in the meantime, we've got some rundown to get to. Well, I wanted to start with the Seahawks this week because uh, we are recording this after they're cut they're, down. They're part of the rundown now. <laughs> I don't know if they're still part of the rundown. They're cut down to 53 players on Tuesday that didn't feel really feature any major surprises. Uh, perhaps the most interesting thing, uh, my ESPN colleague Brady Henderson was the first person I saw point this out, that all 10 of their draft picks this year made the roster really uh jarek reed and kenny mcintosh being kind of the the two later picks kenny mcintosh it seemed like was pretty safe all along uh jarek reed played well in an extended stint at safety on saturday at green bay after uh joey blunt went out of that game with a shoulder injury he was waived injured and uh and I think the other interesting thing is that they kept Artie Burns after he played started at nickel against Green Bay. And, you know, keeping four safeties to me suggests that they're viewing Kobe Bryant right now maybe is at least as much of a safety as a nickel. We'll see how ready Jamal Adams is for the opener. He has not yet returned to practice, is is anticipated this week. And then we'll also see Devin Witherspoon could be the the nickel. In week one, if he's able to return in time, he also has not I, yet I would returned to practice. Extraordinarily shocked if they were considering the depth in the secondary. I think what we're seeing is A, and the Seahawks know they need a lot of dudes back there, partially because of injuries. I mean, they do have two notable injuries, both cornerback and safety uh, of players who haven't practiced. But this is a different model for this team, keeping so many players and have so many, as far as we can tell, competent NFL players at cornerback and safety. And I think this is a, a decision in understanding how important those positions are to playing defense in the NFL right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that came out of Saturday's preseason finale that isn't about the roster specifically Trey Brown looking even better as the other, other starting corner opposite week will in week one, another tough game from Mike Jackson. So you think Mike Jackson is basically number two on the depth chart now? That's that's my guess. I mean, look, the coaches see a lot in practice that we don't get a chance to see from the outside. But in the preseason, Trey Brown was much more effective than Mike Jackson. Okay. And so he is you, the younger, he's the bigger part of the team's future. If you were to predict, again, I would be, considering he has not played an NFL snap, I'd be pretty surprised if Devin Witherspoon was the starting nickel uh, in, week, in week one, at the very least. You think that the starting corners on the outside are Trey Brown and Rick Woolen, and then who at, who at nickel, Artie Burns? I mean, I think the general consensus, you know, reading the Seahawks beat writers is that Kobe Bryant would be in that spot as he was last season. But the fact that he played as much at safety in the preseason as he did and that Artie Burns played as much at cornerback and that they kept the, the other notable thing about keeping Artie Burns is is a vested veteran. If he's on the roster week one, his salary guarantee is for the entire season. So you're only going to keep him for week one if you think there's a really good chance of him playing. That's kind of the yeah. tea leaves I'm reading. Yeah, that they're they're not planning on keeping him for a couple weeks, and then Devin Witherspoon comes back and is healthy, and then releasing him. Exactly. If you were planning on doing that, you would you would kind of do something else, try to figure something else out week one, and then bring him back week two. I I also will say there's two weeks before the season starts. Like I don't think the roster is done. 
it's never done. Like people will say the final roster. It is not. It is it is an initial 53-man roster. And one of that is players going on IR because if you want to be designated to return during the season, you have to be on the active roster at the start of the season, but at, at the cut down to 53 before being placed on IR. So wide receiver is the position we're probably most likely to see that. Uh they kept Cody Thompson and Derek Young, along with, of course, Jake Bobo. There we Was go. Was there ever any question? Uh, instead of Cade Johnson, Matt Landers, Aesop Winston Jr., who were all productive and played a lot during the preseason, both Thompson and Young could be IR candidates with their injuries. Uh, Thompson, I believe, is shoulder, Young, a hip that could require surgery. So, you know, could see some of those guys brought back or some depth on the defensive line with one of those two spots with six wide receivers currently on the roster. And then maybe the other place where there was a decision was middle linebacker where John Radigan made it over Vi Jones, Patrick O'Connell, and Ben Burkervin. Uh, yeah. I think I kind of liked Patrick O'Connell. He, I, I believe, started on Saturday. So he or at least saw a significant playing times. So that was a little bit surprising to me, perhaps. I mean, I will say, I think, as compared to past roster cutdowns, there was less like agonizing seeming decisions like the projections were pretty consistent the entire time i would say like you know bobo played his way onto a spot and that sort of thing but you know it wasn't like oh my god there are 12 you know there's eight grid receivers and we can only keep six there would seem to be a pretty clear divide between the roster spots and the non-roster spots this yeah year. i can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing i mean it reminds me a little bit more of kind of like early glory days pete john era of like there wasn't a lot of drama during the preseason once they were established, like after mm, Russ got I disagree done. because they were like good players. Like you look at the the Halcyon days of the 2012 and 2013 Seahawks, they were having tons of players getting claimed off waivers. So you think after that the cutdowns. roster was better overall then? Because to me, I viewed it as like they've got pretty good players at every position. And th- there wasn't like a, a lot, of... lot of starting questions because like you, the starters were established, but I'm saying that like the battles Just for the all, 53rd spot were really good. All of the de- right now or back, back then. Day? Right now, do you feel like that's not the case? Like their depth is not as strong. I mean, as that's what I just said. It's like basically the guys who got cut other than maybe at wide receiver. It was like. Yeah, you know, that wasn't a surprise. But does that mean that they just have like a pretty good 53? I mean, that's the hope is that like the cutoff is precisely there. Yeah, because I feel like in other scenarios where you're having a bunch of battles, it might mean that you have like a pretty good like 40 players and then a bunch of people fighting over these last spots who are all kind of take it or leave it. Right. Like, yeah, I felt like that on roster players. I felt like that more the last couple of years where the Seahawks were not very good in the preseason and the back end of their roster really got exposed. So I, I think this is I think this is a positive ultimately that they're having. I, don't, I mean, we've talked really so little about the Seahawks. I'm excited about next week chatting with Ben, previewing the season. But uh, I I do feel like they have a good core of NFL caliber players. It's interesting that all the draft picks made the team. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's and that's what built up that depth to the degree that we are at this point, is that you look at those years where they did not have that many draft picks because of trades. And... You know, we're not able to fill out the back end of the roster. We're really heavily defending, depending on undrafted rookies. This year, you have Bobo and you have Carson Stoll, the long snapper, are the two undrafted rookies, lone two undrafted rookies who made it this year. You know, because of the fact that you had a huge draft class in 2022 and another big one with 10 players this year. 
but it is also like as you get further down the road you want to you don't want to be cutting those players you don't want to draft a player to cut them but no. you would assume that you have enough good players on your roster already that you can't like 10 draft picks being able to make the roster is kind of a lot I mean, eight of them were in the first 154 picks. Like, it would be pretty surprising if anyone drafted that high, didn't make it. And Macintosh, you know, given the situation at running back, never really seemed threatened. It was only Reed that seemed to me to be a question mark. So they sort of just had pretty, they had quite good draft picks ultimately overall. Yeah. And one of them was a running back. And, And like a seventh round running back is a pretty valuable asset to have. Can be a, a very nice thing to have. So uh, the other big news on Tuesday, Jackson Smith and Jigba back at practice with his left hand heavily wrapped. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was. So the, the injury occurred, yes, 10 days ago. I don't know if he's ready to play in an NFL game right now, but still encouraging sign for his chances of being out there in week one. I mean, I... (laughs) He was definitely having passes thrown to him at practice, even if it was, it was catching them. Yeah, no, it's one thing to have the pass thrown to you. It's another thing to actually catch it. It it also makes obviously a hand injury is different than something else where he can't run or something like that. Like he's going to be able to be up to speed by the time he is playing. So I don't think, I think this is if JSN had to get injured, this was probably one of the better possible injuries. I'm not worried about him not being able to catch or whatever now, like he'll be fine in that regard. So I don't know. I, I initially, when the injury happened, assumed there was no chance of him playing uh, in week one. And now, I mean, we talked about that last week, right? Saying that Jake Bobo is looking like he might be up there with, he might be on the field in week one. I mean, he still probably would be on the field. He still is very likely your fourth wide receiver. I I have now a week later seeing Jackson Smith and Jacob practice and thinking there is, I think it is much more likely that he plays in week one. Just seeing how quickly he came back, the fact that he's having passes thrown to him. It's pretty encouraging, pretty shocking. Like he just sort of continues to defy us. Yeah. I mean, I would say that one of the things, you know, either way, but especially if Bobo proves to be as effective as he was during the preseason and, you know, he had another nice game in Green Bay, catching a touchdown, drawing a pass interference is like if you could get this, the snap counts down for DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, they've been uh, among the you know, most frequently used wide receivers in the NFL when they've been healthy the last couple of seasons and Lockett in particular, as we've talked about, you know, his tendency to wear down and suffer minor injuries in the second half of the season, giving him a little more rest wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So. I think that's all I have on the Seahawks until next week. Yeah. The Rams, Sean McVay has promised they will have a kicker by the time they face the Seahawks on wow. September 10th, which is actually kind of good news for the Seahawks. I feel like that would have, they would have been more dangerous without a kicker if no, Sean McVay had true. to go for fourth downs. Yeah, he's promised that they'll have a kicker. That's maybe, the thing he's, he has to do. maybe he's threatened they have it. Well, they, their there final 53-man roster, their initial 53-man roster did not include any kickers. Yeah, the final 53-man roster. It's set for the year. <laughs> Unchanging, unceasing. All right, with that, let's get into the roundup. There we go. Starting with the Seattle Sounders, who actually earned a point last Sunday at Minnesota United as Yaimar Gomez Andrade scored both goals in Sunday's 1-1 draw, getting the Sounders on the board with a header in the first half, but allowing Minnesota to equalize via an own goal after halftime. 
The Loons had 16 shot attempts and doubled the Sounders in XG. So pretty fortunate draw, all things considered. We didn't see dramatic lineup changes by Brian Schmetzer, but Obed Vargas did replace Leo Chu in midfield, giving the Sounders a more defensive shape. Still no Christian Roldan in the 18 as he works back from his second concussion of the season. Although the draw technically moved the Sounders up to third in the standings, in terms of points per match, the West is tightening. Seattle tied for fourth there at 1.42 points per match with Vancouver, which has two matches in hand and barely ahead of Houston and San Jose at 1.4 apiece. That makes this a big two-week match week for the Sounders, who play Wednesday in Austin before returning home Saturday for a derby against the Portland Timbers. Austin currently battling for the last playoff spot while the Timbers look out of it. They are 13th in the West at 1.04 points per match. Portland fired longtime manager Gio Saurese last week after a dispiriting 5-0 loss at Houston that also saw striker Yaroslav Nizgoda suffer an ACL tear. With interim manager Miles Joseph in charge, the Timbers lost 3-2 at home to Vancouver last Saturday. They also play midweek against RSL. So even though things are not going great for the Sounders right now, they're going even worse in Portland. There we go. There's always a silver lining. For the first time in the two years since the NWSL expanded to Angel City and San Diego, a one of the teams from the state of California beat OL Reign in a regular season match on Sunday. Is Angel City FC playing at home got a goal from former Reign player Madison Hammond in building a 2-0 lead that withstood Megan Rapino converting a penalty in the 74th minute. In a surprise move, Laura Harvey started backup Claudia Dickey in goal over starter Fallon Tullis Joyce, rewarding Dickey's role in the team's clean run through the NWSL Challenge Club, including a pair of matches against Angel City. That move did not pay off as Dickey was out of position (laughs) on Angel City's opening goal. Rapino came on at halftime in her return after the World Cup while Rose Lavelle went the full 90. I also saw Jess Fishlock coming in the second half as she's working back from injury. And naturally, the rain attack got much more dangerous with Fishlock and Rapino in there. Hopefully, they can play more extended minutes this weekend because the result dropped the rain into the sixth and final playoff spot with 24 points, two points behind Gotham FC and Washington Spirit, and two points ahead of Orlando Pride, who visit Seattle on Sunday in a crucial crucial match. Reigns still tied for fourth in goal differential. They're capable of playing better. Certainly we've seen in the NWSL Challenge Cup how well they've played, but uh, a little scuffling right now as they've lost, I think, three matches in a row. Well, speaking of three consecutive losses, <sighs> that, that stretch eliminated the Storm from playoff contention at 10 and 25. And they could not help their own lottery cause in home and home losses to the Chicago sky in that span. After getting blown out in Chicago last week on the road trip, the storm led heading to the fourth quarter on Sunday at home, but went without a field goal in just one point in the final five minutes and 16 seconds, allowing the sky to come back and win. The worst news came Tuesday when Chicago won at Los Angeles clinching the head-to-head season series against the Sparks, who they're battling for the eighth seed and moving within a half game of them, the standings, one back in the loss column. LA is still the favorite. They still make it in 60% of my simulations of the remainder of the season, but that's that's twice as much as Chicago's playoff odds entering the game. And, uh, you know, they would have been hard-pressed to make the playoffs had they lost this one, which they won 76-75 oh. on a play where their star, Kalia Copper, 
pretty blatantly pushed off former storm guard Jordan Canada on their final offensive possession to get the go ahead basket. And then LA had, I think three shots on the final possession to try to win this and missed all three of them. So this is what we're watching. We're done with the storm, right? The storm eliminated the season's over, right? They can't, they can't play bad enough to improve their odds in the lottery or can they? So there's one thing they can do. So they real Indiana and Phoenix, Phoenix has like the storm also been eliminated. They ended an even longer playoff streak than the storm who had made it every year since 2017, Brianna Stewart's rookie season or 2016. Yeah. 2016. So seven, seven consecutive years. The storm had previously made the playoffs. Uh, Phoenix had had an even longer streak. I think 10 consecutive years. They barring something dramatically unforeseen will be first and second in the lottery order. And was that whether, again, Phoenix and Indiana? In Indiana. Okay. So basically the Storm's position swings on LA or Chicago. There's a small chance that Minnesota or Washington could also fall out of the playoffs, but that's like under 2% of the time in those simulations. So if it's LA makes the eight seed, gets the eight seed, the Storm enters the lottery third, 18% chance at the number one pick. Okay. If Chicago gets the eight seed, it's fourth, 10% chance at the number one pick. Okay. So, but there's nothing else that the storm can do at this point. Well, That's there is because they do happen to play two times against the Los Angeles Sparks the rest of the season, including Thursday. Oh, I see what you're saying. They host the Sparks in the season finale on September 10th. And uh, if you're looking for a time to rest Jewel Lloyd at the end of the season, that might not be a bad one. Do you, do you think, and maybe this is a stupid question. The storm are aware of all this, right? Yes, they're aware of this. Okay, they're they're paying as close of attention to this as the Pelton cast is. I, I I mean I don't think that the coaching staff is paying as close attention to it, but I think the front office likely is. I mean I can't say that specifically, but and, they, and they the, understand the stakes. Is the front office instructing the coaching staff on how to approach these games? No, I don't think so. So is that part of, is that kind of baked into your 60% of simulations? Those two games against the Storm are in there? Yes. Is that, is that part of it because of the weaker schedule that the that the Sparks have? Because of the fact that those are, you know, they're not guaranteed wins, but they're very likely wins. It forces Chicago to win at least, uh, at least two of their remaining four games. And... You know, they're only going to be favored, I think, in one of those games. They play Indiana, but their other three games are against teams headed to the playoffs. Okay. So for the next week, though, this is what we're watching closely. Is It is all eyes on the sky. Storm games do not matter at this point. Except the ones against LA. So, except, yeah, except the ones against LA to lose in. So we have a week and a half left in the season, which ends on September 10th with Storm Sparks. Uh, opposite opposite Seahawks Rams. In oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great scheduling, but also it's like we need to tune in to cheer against the storm. <laughs> uh, two two equally important Seattle LA matchups happening on that day. You no know, one thing, like relative to the coaching staff, a lot of people brought up tanking about the final play of Sunday's game. The storm were down five, rebounded a missed Chicago free throw with 15 seconds left. Did not attempt a shot. It was very perplexing to watch. I don't. I don't know what happened, but again, that was the game they had huge incentive to win, to beat Chicago and try to knock them out of the playoffs. They had no interest in losing that game, self-interest in losing that game. I 
I mean, the possession begins kind of normally as he McGregor pushes the ball up the court. Sammy Wickham isn't moving as fast as you would probably want in that situation, but she finds a wide open Jordan Horston. And I think that's just kind of a case of, you know, Horston is a rookie got confused because Chicago wasn't coming to defend her if she was going in for a layup. And she was like, wait, why aren't they defending me? I, I maybe should not shoot this layup and pulled it back out. So I, that certainly was not anything that was communicated from the bench. That was a very strange play, though. It was. I agree. I mean, the reality was people were talking about it being tanking, but winning would have been the best outcome for the Storm. That's what I'm telling you. So I, that, that's why I ask you, though, how much you think that the, the coaching staff and the front office are paying attention to this. You think that was just like a like J.R. Smith type situation, like not knowing what was going on with the clock or the situational basketball? Yeah, I mean, it was more understandable for a rookie in a regular season game than a, uh, a veteran in <laughs> game one of the NBA Finals. So I don't know if I would make that specific it's like comparison. The, the but most yes. notable situation of a player not knowing the situation. Oh, there's a there's a few out there. I think Magic Johnson once tied, fouled in a tied game in the finals. I'm pretty sure that happened against Boston at one point. Or no, he hey, dribbled grandpa. out the clock. He dribbled out the <laughs> clock when in a tie game. Sorry that I didn't remember that play that happened in the 80s. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that winning time episode yet. Well, I'm sure it's going to be in there. <laughs> I, mean, I have not yet seen the season of winning time, but I'm sure it's going to be in there. All right, should we get to UW football? Absolutely, we should. It's an anticipated season. Whew. Uh, I'm freaking ready. I mean, th- this was one of those situations. I thought that the Husky offseason, uh, again, Pelton Cass Golden Rule. I thought this was going to be one of those offseasons where it was like the, the Husky season ended, beat Texas, and it would feel like no time had passed. And it was just like, we are back into it. And honestly, it didn't feel like that. No. Like, wh- what the amount of attention that UW football has had on it has been almost completely off the field because of like my entire attention that has been paid to college football has been completely on conference realignment. Like when people in RCFB are talking about the actual games, I'm like, what are we talking about here, folks? Like you were so confused when they started talking about games last, last weekend. Yeah. I was like, let's get back to the important point here. Stanford and Cal to the ACC. You wanted should... you wanted more college football transact. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I again the amount that I paid attention to college football. My college football attention bang right now is probably up there with the highest it has ever been, and it has nothing to do with the games at all. So it's more proof that transacting is much more exciting than the actual games of football. But but now that we are in it. Now that we are at the 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 ultimate season of the Pac-12, and the Huskies are starting with a game against a very very good team, I'm not an, I'm not a midseason fan form right now. I will say, I, I think we're gonna have to build there in well, this t- one. Tell tell the listener what you told me earlier about your your th- you're asking Mrs. Fantasy Genius about plans for Saturday. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was like, it's eighty degrees and sunny. What? Just do a drive to the coast. I literally had no idea. I mean, that's there's two games. Whereas like the Seahawks preseason game, I literally, I was in Nashville. I like pull up Twitter or whatever, and people are like, "Game starting here at Lambeau Field." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> that game much was much too so, early for us. 
so far off my radar, right? I was in SEC country. I was mad. There are rivals. I'm not feeling good about it. You know, I, I had issues with Josh Heupel at the time. But could you tell that it mattered more? Could I tell that it mattered more? That's a great question. I don't uh, think in Nashville you're going to tell that it mattered more. No, I, I actually could tell that it mattered more. So one of the people that I was uh, hanging out with, this publisher in Nashville, uh, she has three sons who play football. One currently plays for the University of Tennessee as a wide receiver. One is currently in high school in Nashville. And then one is a little bit younger. Well, there are two are in high school in Nashville, but one is a senior going to, and he's going to the University of Tennessee next year from and chose them over Ohio State. Wow. And, okay, that's pretty serious. No, this kid's fucking good. His name is Edwin Spillman. But uh, she posted a clip of his, I assume this is early in the season, blowing up this kid in the backfield or on, on Instagram. And I was just like, oh my God. It was like Jadavion Clowney, right? Like the most famous Clowney play. It, it looked like that. And they had gone to, they lost the game that that, that happened. Because I was like, I assume this team wins every single game if he's good enough to be playing there. But they had gone to Alabama on that Friday night and played against probably one of the best high schools in the country at football. They said that the quarterback was committed to Florida, I want to say. And they had like a receiver on the Alabama team that was committed to Alabama. Like these, they were playing very, very, very good teams. This wasn't shit that happens in Seattle. You know what I mean? I don't know almost anybody who has a child that picked UW or anything over Ohio State and was playing Alabama football on a Friday night. So I think I did get a sense that it meant more. Okay, there you go. You did come up with something. Yes, Edwin Spillman, a uh, four-star recruit. He's a four-star so, recruit? Yeah. 6'2", uh, 225 outside linebacker. But but also, I don't go to the Assembly Food Hall or whatever. And assembly is the one in uh, Vegas, right? Or no, is that, no. Is that what the one I was went to? I think it's called the Assembly Food. The Assembly Food Hall in Nashville, Tennessee. Block 16 is the one in Vegas, oh, for yeah. the record. And I don't see a photo of Kalen DeBoer advertising Coke Zero. You know what I mean? Like this is we are in college football country and it still is. It is over everything. Everywhere you went, there was college football. Like every place that you went into, there was multiple screens showing all of the week zero games. So I, I think you do get a sense of it because you know, I, I did watch the UW game at Arizona in 2021. It was, it was like, a, was that the Jimmy like second season that I was there when I was in Nashville? Now the so, other thing is in that I, in that probably that food hall. I assume it was the same food hall. There was a Titans game that was going on on Friday night, a preseason game against the Patriots, and which again, all preseason games, I'm just shocked that they exist. <laughs> but I literally was at dinner with these people, and I was like, "Oh, where are y'all headed?" And they were like, "Oh, we're going to the Titans game." Uh, and I was like, "There's a Titans game." <laughs> it was unknown to me, but Titan fanfare is very very little. Like it is college football right now. Nashville, even though it's still fairly far from UT, it is a college football town. Well, they do have an SEC school in Nashville your way. Vanderbilt? <laughs> Barely, but they do have an SEC school there. It's Obviously, it's UT's like, I, I'm the aware. school. That's so the like Huskies. the kid who wanted to play in the SEC. He had dreamt <laughs> of playing in the SEC. He'd be like, do you want to play SEC football? Vanderbilt? <laughs> We're here, too. <laughs> Missouri, I think, is better if you're going to play SEC football <laughs> than Vanderbilt. 
this Vander Vanderbilt has to be the worst SEC team, like or like to feel like you're playing SEC football. It's certainly the least SEC SEC yeah. team. Culturally, I think that is fair to say. And the sport, uh, like <laughs> the team, are are definitely by far the least SEC of anybody in the conference. Yeah. We're going to have a Vanderbilt listener. This is a compliment <laughs> to Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. Not an insult. Like UW is not. It does not matter more in the Pac-12. That's for sure. Uh, the Huskies enter the season number 23 in ESPN's college football power index, given just 6.6% chance of winning the Pac-12. I mean, I think this is kind of inevitable. Uh, there is a player component to FPI, but a lot of it at the college level inevitably is about your past performance as a school and two years ago the huskies missed uh out on a bowl game they finished what five and seven four and eight uh i don't think that actually has that much to bear on this season there is probably some element of regression to the mean that you have to worry about with this season but that i think they're better than that uh UW's depth chart is out the biggest surprise is that redshirt freshman Parker, Parker Brailsford won the starting job at right guard, pushing Nate Kaleppo and Julius Bulow to a competition at left guard where they're listed as either or on the depth chart. Offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb said all three plus sophomore Gary and Hatchett will see action this season. Dylan Johnson is listed as the starting running back with Will Nixon as the backup, although again, Kaelin DeBoer unsurprisingly said it won't be just two players seeing action at that spot. Wide receiver Tayshawn Lyons and backup offensive lineman Landon Hatchett, the lone true freshman on the two deeps. Still a pretty good likelihood that both of those two are red shirt because, you know, the Huskies are pretty deep with their first five wide receivers, don't necessarily need to go six on a regular basis. And uh, that's a great place to be to not have to play freshman. And we'll also get Giles Jackson back. He's not on the depth chart right now due to injury, but uh, at some point he will likely return. Okay. So So this said... That's that's the team in general, but we're previewing an actual football game, and this isn't Tulsa. This isn't Portland State. Previewing no, this, Boise State. This is a real ass football game. I mean, you think back to the previous times that the Huskies have opened this, like the previous times they've played Boise State because there was a couple of bowl games in there in the Las Vegas Bowl, but they've opened the season twice against Boise in recent years. Uh, obviously, the first game at the renovated Husky Stadium. The Steve Sarkeesian's final year as head coach, where they just blew out a ranked Chris Peterson Boise State team, and then Peterson's return to Boise uh, with Jake Browning's first start, a a thrilling game that was what a missed field goal at the end that they ended up losing that one. So, Boise is not quite at that level right now, but coming off a ten and four season in their second year under head coach Andy Avalos, who replaced Brian Harson. When Harson left for Auburn, no drama at all there. Nope, nope. And that's that's all that ever happened. Uh, Boise went eight and zero in the Mountain West Conference regular season, but lost the conference title game to Jake Hayner and Fresno State. Wow! Before beating North Texas in the Frisco Bowl, uh, their lone Power Five conference game last year, they lost the season opener thirty four seventeen at Oregon State. Uh, they started the season just two and two and then underwent massive changes after that, replacing offensive coordinator Tim Plow with former Boise head coach Dirk Cutter, who came out of retirement, and quarterback Hank Bachmeyer, who has since transferred with redshirt freshman Taylor Green, who completed 61% of his passes for 7.5 yards per attempt with just six interceptions, enters this season as the unquestioned starter. 
Something the Huskies have been talking a lot about Green is a major run threat. He ran for 10 touchdowns and 7.3 yards per carry, helping him finish third in the Mountain West in QBR uh, in his first season uh, as a regular player. Cutter returned to retirement after the season, and Avalos hired old friend Bush Hampton. There we go. Offensive quarterback coach after Hampton spent three years at Missouri. This is, of course, bringing him back to his alma mater. In the SEC. You you got that SEC experience as a wide receiver (laughs) and quarterback coach there. But did not call plays, has not done that since the 2019 UW season, which let me tell you, looks a lot better in hindsight after a couple of years of the John Donovan era. Uh Uh-huh. People were not missing, but uh, granted, we've seen how good you can have it with the Kalen DeVore, Ryan Grubb offense, but uh, be careful what you wish for on firing Bush Hamden. Boise State last year was number 95 nationally in pass EPA per play, according to college football graphs, number 41 in rush EPA per play, and also run heavy with 59% of their plays as runs number 25 nationally. In addition to Green is a run threat, they returned fifth-year senior running back George Holani, who ran for 1,157 yards and 10 touchdowns, as well as backup Ashton Genty, who ran for 821 and seven touchdowns on 5.3 yards per carry as a true freshman. Kind of adding to the run-heavy element of this, they lost Latrell Caples, who led a balanced receiving attack with 51 catches for 549 yards to a leg injury suffered in the fall practice. He's out for the season. So the real strength of last year's team was their defense, which ranked 35th in FBI efficiency as compared to 80th on offense. They lost six starters from that unit, but due to return their leading tackler, DJ Schramm, and that's Avalos's background. He was the defensive coordinator at Boise, and then Oregon was his job before taking the head coaching job wow, at his alma mater. In Boise. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, it makes sense. Uh-huh. Educational Pacific like North similar levels of school. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Chris Peterson did come from Boise to to Washington. It's not like we're not connected <laughs> to there. There you go. Uh the Huskies are 14 and a half point favorites in this one, but it it is still a scary, scary season opener, I would say. Absolutely it is. I mean, fr- from your description of what Boise State was doing well last year, I think there's probably a small element of they were beating up on pretty weak competition. And then when they played a team who was a little bit closer in Fresno State. I mean, like, the Mountain West is not bad. They And they, they beat Fresno State, but that came when Jake Hayner was injured. It, it's not weak competition as in, like, they're playing the worst teams in the league. But it's still, it's a weaker schedule. Like, the record is not quite indicative. If they were a Pac-12 team, they would be around 500 or slightly below 500, probably. So, I and I think that that's more of... Where they yeah, should probably be. Didn't a team that was around five grid? It was it was a sunny Sunday in Tempe, something we will never have to see again. Thank thankfully, God. sunny Saturday in Tempe. Uh, but if a, a pretty bad back 12 team beat the Huskies last year, it happens. Any team could beat any team in college football. But what I'm saying is, this is a team that was uh, the the offense EPA wise was not that efficient. It's a large rushing attack. I think the UW defense will be a little bit better. Last year, Boise finished 54th in FPI, almost identical to Washington State. How'd that game go? Uh, They had to leave the conference. Um, (laughs) We left it to them. But But they were a 500 conference team, so you're probably right. Although they lost much worse to Fresno State. 
in the LA Bowl. That was a 29 to 6 Fresno State win in wow. Jay Kaner's final college go. game. Uh, I had no idea that Fresno State played Wazoo in a bowl game. I had completely forgotten that piece of information, the, too. I knew that they beat, they won the Mountain West Championship. The, this is totally unrelated, but your sunny Saturday in Tempe. When the when Gino was up, uh, not to get into the Mariners talk, the Mariners are so good. We talk about them in every segment. When you when <laughs> Gino was up with the two runners on down two runs, I was like, he's gonna hit this three run jack, and it's gonna be like, can you beat the Mariners on a rainy Tuesday in Seattle? And the the answer was yes, they could. But I was like, this team will not die. Anyway, th- they're a school that was relying on their defense. They're bringing back they're losing a lot of their starters from defense. The offense wasn't necessarily that efficient. It's still built around that rushing attack, which is probably something that I think UW should be able to attack a little bit more. Like if they're scoring quickly and Boise state is taking long drives to score, it's just a difficult proposition. It's very similar to last year where we talked about like this UW offense. We haven't seen them in 2023, but there's nothing aside from our own fear about being ranked high that would suggest that they're Davis's injury, I suppose. Even still, like it's going to start passing. It's start. It's going to start from the pass game and support the run game. Like I Correct. again, we talked about this. Like I don't know if there's any individual running back who could make that big of a difference to have lost for UW. The cumulative depth is important, but I don't think you look at it with Cam Davis being out and say, "Well, this offense is going to be markedly worse." There's still another year in the system. You know, for Michael Penix, this is now what is fourth year with Kalen DeBoer or third. I think it's his fourth year with Kalen DeBoer. No, it's only his third. But being back at UW, running back a consistent receiving core, like these players have all played together for quite a few games now. And so I think the expectation still kind of has to be that they're going to hit the ground running. And I, I think that UW, again, aside from our own personal fear, looking at this, I think that they're going to comfortably win this game. And I think that they're going to not surprise people, but it'll be enough of a comfortable victory that we're like, okay, it's a, it's going to be a take a deep breath game in a way that's like, or an exhale game, not take deep breath. It's going to be an exhale game in a way that like, we can look at that being ranked number 10 in the country and be like, okay, we can exhale for a second here because this team is back and they are still good. It would only be for one week because then they're going on the road to play Michigan state. Uh, well, they play Tulsa in between. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that would that would be the one week you would exhale. But but this this game will determine how we feel about that Michigan State game. I agree with that. Game. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that talent, by the way, including the receiving talent, Huskies two first round picks in my ESPN colleague Matt Miller's preseason mock draft: Roma Dunze, number twenty, Braylon Trice, number thirty-one. Wow. Real so, name, no gimmicks. Yeah. Uh, percentage chances of victory for the first time since January. I think they are 78, 83%. Huh. You were so confident about it. It's going to be a comfortable victory that you came out with 83%. You came out, you started out lower. I was going to say 80%. So you you ended up a little higher. The classic Tristan. It's bump. still Boise state. It's not like, yeah, no, it, I mean, it's a real ass opponent. It's a real ass opponent. It was a good quarterback. He, that's the biggest thing to me. The, Taylor Green is the concern to me. Like, if he has a, you Let know, I, their, you their defense is, is a lot better than Eastern quarterback. Is Taylor Green a good quarterback, or are those numbers that we're looking at kind of 
lying to us? Are they are they manipulated in a way that is making him seem better than he is? Because not that much. I mean, because you look at the passing EPA per per play, those are not very good numbers. They're fine. Well, but this we talked like... about in in QBR, the the run EPA tends to be a little bit overweighted relative to what it should be. And where is he at in QBR? He was third in the Mountain West. Did I not say that? I mean, after... Jake Hayner was obviously Hayner. number one. By the way, Jake Hayner did, just to be close that loop, make the Saints roster. There we so. go. Uh, where I, would I he have ranked know... in the Pac-12, though? He was 48th nationally at 65.9. And, I mean, the Pac-12 obviously has unusually good quarterbacks right now, but and that would have ranked... Year. With, I mean, there's also DTR last year. Uh, he would have ranked seventh in the Pac-12. Yeah, he's a fine quarterback. But this isn't like a quarterback we're terrified of, right? I mean, could he be as good as Vernon Adams? I think that's plausible. And this is a lot better defense than those Eastern teams. So, But he doesn't have fucking Cooper Cup. Like, well, that is a fair point. I don't... <laughs> I do. I actually do not think he could be as good as Vernon Adams, or at least the combination of Vernon Adams and Cooper Cup together. Yeah, Vernon Adams was pretty freaking good. He was very good. He transferred and started at Oregon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't think. What is his name? Taylor Green. Taylor Green. I I am boldly predicting Taylor Green will not be good enough to transfer and start at Oregon. I first off, I think he eventually might be able to. Uh, Vernon Adams. I I. I don't know. Did he play multiple times at Husky Stadium? But the the main time it was, he was probably a fourth year junior, right? Because he grad transferred to Oregon. The two and Green did this last year. He was a second year sophomore, or second year freshman. He's now a third year sophomore, so he's very young. So, I'm high on two and Green. You are a little more impressed with that season than I am. I just like running quarterbacks are scary, man. Okay. I, I am expecting this UW defense to be a lot better than they were last year. I'm expecting some regression on offense because there just kind of has to be. And I'm expecting the defense to be significantly better. I'm expecting those two things to more or less even out where the regression on offense and the progression on defense lead to the Huskies being in about the same place around maybe the 10th best team in the country. Which is where the pollsters have. So. Except those hate ass coaches who have them 11th. Wow. No, I mean, no matter what, after after the season that we had last year and where it left off, that beating Texas in the bowl game, uh, I'm just excited for Husky football to be back. I mean, I'm it excited is... to tailgate. 1230 is not a... I, I know people like fetishize the 1230 start time because that's what it traditionally was. To me, that's a little too early for the tailgating purposes. I, I fetish is a lot this week. <laughs> I suppose so. A nice mid-afternoon. For me, early I fetishize start the leaves time. falling, drinking a pumpkin spice latte while it's happening. Uh, <laughs> for you, it's uh, for other people, it's the twelve thirty start time. Yes, actually, I I kind of agree with those people. The breakfast tailgate, pretty fun. It's just very early to have to get there. I, what time do you think you're going to get there on Saturday? I have no idea. I literally had not considered it. I didn't. I had forgotten <laughs> that the game was happening until we talked earlier. Well, you definitely did not forget about Mariners games happening. It's actually funny to hear you say that because I the Mariners are for me the right now. Obviously, football will be the case as we get into next week, this weekend, and next week. They are the only team that are uh, build my schedule around watching them. 
type of team right now. And I... Seattle Mariners. I have missed some Mariners games or whatever because of various life stuff happening. It's fucking baseball. It happens. But, like, if I have any chance... I, I will be watching every single pitch of the Mariners game, and I am excited to do so. I look at that weekend, the next the next six that they have, or whatever, of the Mets and the Reds, and I'm like, it's just going to be so much fun to watch the Mariners play against these teams, to be going into Shea Stadium and playing against them, to be playing against Ellie De La Cruz. I'm like, this is going to be such a fun experience to be able to watch those and to see the Mariners in September play baseball. <laughs> they they played baseball before. They just didn't play meaningful baseball necessarily. Uh, I was me- thinking back to the uh, the the Mitch Haniger game against the A's at the end of the 2021 season, uh-huh. and how it was like the first time I had actually watched a full. Man I remember game you got you got a Pagliacci pizza. I did. It's like you made a whole date of it. Lovely right? night. Yeah. yeah. And now it's just like that's a thing I do is watch full murderous games. Yeah, not not always, obviously, but uh, from time to time, it's totally different. And and don't look now, these twenty twenty three Seattle Mariners, the AL West. This is not a division race. It's or sorry, <laughs> this is a goddamn arms race between these three teams. All three of them locked in. At number one in the American League West, this is the type of situation where it is one full month of stress, maybe even a little bit more, five weeks of stress where we're having to pay attention every single night. The Mariners, they will feel like they cannot lose a game. And we're going to be watching every single Rangers game, every single Astros game for a full month as they are competing with these teams and also the Blue Jays as well. Right now, it feels like these three are the teams that are locked in. But as the Mariners taught us in the month of August, anything can change very, very quickly. So to be in this place on August 30th, in lockstep with the Astros, with the Rangers, atop the AL West, the second best division in the American League, this is an incredible place to be. And Jerry... Wait, wait, can't we just call them like the second best division in baseball? Like, in baseball. which is the NL division that's better than this? I saw who started today. I know you've pined for him for a long time. I crunched the numbers. Lucas Giolito was waived today. And I've had a little bit of success here with Italians lately. And as far as I know, judging by his last name, Lucas Giolito is an Italian. Put him on the roster, Jerry, right now. Now, you release Festa, give us another Italian. Well, I mean, whether Lucas Giolito, so one of, I believe, six A's who was placed on irrevocable waivers. Angels, yes. Uh, The A's did not have high-paid players to get rid of in the first place. Uh, I don't think he's going to make it to the Mariners, is he? I'm busy figuring out whether he's Italian or not. I mean, me too. I guess I'm, we're, <laughs> we're both on this task. <laughs> what national is Lucas Giolito? Lucas Giolito is not an Italian, but rather an American. Well, you can be both, sir. Are you kidding me? He's not an Italian, but rather an American? Who uh, the, wrote that? The Italian it sounds really... like a country song. Well, it's probably like AI wrote that. Like, let's let's remain calm. It, it's, uh, the it's Italian everything. The Italian American Baseball Foundation posted about him. So that. 
that's a that's a piece of evidence that he is in fact Italian. When I am in the owner's box tomorrow, I will tell John Stanton, who obviously will be there with me, looking for feedback on the roster. Okay, according to uh, according to Medium.com, his father is of Italian descent. I mean, I would figure because the last name Giolito. Yeah. That's how you ended up Pelton. All right, there's there's enough references. Okay. There's enough references out there that I think we can safely call him Italian. Do it, Jerry! I don't think the issue is going to be the Mariners' willingness. Make the damn move, Jerry. Lucas Giolito to Seattle. Has it not worked out? Two years in a row, you've been led by Italians. And having one more on the starting pitching staff would be huge. I, I agree with all that. I feel bad for Luke Weaver that his first start as a Mariner came under these circumstances where George Kirby got scratched day of due to illness. And... uh he, he got hit around a little bit. The bullpen was terrific in this one. It was really the Mariners' offense without Julio Rodriguez, who was also a late scratch due to left foot soreness. But we need to look a little deeper to find out why the Mariners lost this game to the A's in a situation where every game matters. To the point where, by the way, earlier this evening, I watched an inning and a half of the Rangers-Mets game. Wow, you are in it. I mean, granted, there was nothing on between the end of the WNBA games and the start of the Mariners games, and it kind of timed up perfectly. But like, I was legitimately upset when the Mets gave up a run in the top of the ninth. And correctly so, because the Mets then did hit a whole run with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, but only to make it a 2-1 game. But anyways, Luke Weaver gets this start on the last minute. But the reason is because you, Tristan Garcino, declared earlier today that the Mariners were, quote, too good to lose to the A's. I did I say that? You're dead. I stand by it. This took this took literally, we were talking about swarms of bees, which I think actually <laughs> happened in a Giants game recently. Uh swarms of bees, balls hitting off of hitters' heads, the combination of your starting pitcher being scratched right before the game, and your superstar center fielder being scratched right before the game, and Ty France leaving with injury. This is like we have reached biblical proportions for the Mariners to lose a game to the A's, and I still thought they were going to pull it off. Oh, it it really did seem like that much of the game. Certainly, I was, I was like, just like prepared Gino, to ask. Give us a hit. I was prepared single. to ask, like, how many players would you have to take off the Mariners for the A's to be favored over them? But alas, the A's have finally gotten their first win in ten opportunities against the Mariners this season. A lot of those games, they were down early too, like. There were so many of those games that the Mariners pulled out in the ninth inning against the A's. Like, this felt like it was going to be one of them. So, we can give the A's a game. It's fine. It, I was it say, also would have been kind of mean-spirited to beat the A's. It, like, come back in the ninth inning against the A's after they were like, finally, we got one against these guys. Uh, Julio, nerve issue in his foot. About that at all? It would have been. Nerve issue in his foot day to day. Okay. So... Do you think this is the type of injury? I get it. It's August. They've been playing a lot of baseball. All these players have been playing a lot of baseball. It's also like there's an off day coming. It's the A's. Maybe they give him a couple days off plus Thursday. And then you could give Julio actually a pretty extended bit of rest. Right. Um, so we'll see if he ends up going on Wednesday in that day game. I mean, I think the not. fact that they lost means he's much more likely to play. Probably. Dur- during the day game than otherwise. Uh, but and there is not, as you've noted, a lot of 
uh, margin for error. I mean, I think, I guess the nice thing would be potentially like, you know, if you could build up a, a significant lead and then get him out early would be one way to do it. Oh, in the game, not in the division. Yeah. I was going to say, how much time do you think there is? How confident are you? <laughs> I'm not that confident. The Rangers seem to have arrested things a little bit. They're sliding a little bit. Uh, the other Mariners injury news, happier injury news. Jared Kelnick headed to Tacoma for a rehab assignment beginning Thursday, nearing his return to the roster. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous about it. Like I am genuinely nervous about Kellenic coming back, which is a hilarious. I understand this all takes Tristan scenario, but they've been, I mean, you could probably their record without Jared Kellenic during the stretch is probably better than the 2001 Mariners. You know what I mean? Like the, they have been so good without <laughs> Kellenic that it's a little We're bit not going to run a no Kellenic. No, 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 definitely not. I mean, are you like, Zone is still good. I'm, I yes. understand having they're more still ahead of the, the pace. Roster. I'm not going to run the graphic tomorrow, but they're still ahead of the pace. When they were like, only Brian O'Keefe is left to hit. It was just like, Ooh, well, use more bats. I mean that that was a different issue. The, he would be replacing one of the guys who was starting today, presumably either Cade Marlowe or Mike Ford, who who he did not start but played the well, majority. Well, I mean, if it's September, game. they can just call him up. Again, I think they'll probably use that spot on a third catcher. But yes, the rosters are expanding in a couple of days here. Aren't there three spots, didn't you say? Two, because the rosters are 26 now. We're used to in our heads rosters being 25, but they are now 26. Wow. This is also inflation. why inflation. incorrectly to correct myself from the emergency podcast a week and a half ago said the Mariners had used all the relievers and they had not. I can't remember who the reliever was they hadn't used, but they had one more because I was thinking 12-man Yes. Uh, pen instead of 13. And that's an important correction to make, I think, because <laughs> people were really concerned with you misspeaking about the amount of relievers in our all-hype emergency podcast. Look, you know, I, it's important to correct myself when I'm wrong. But I also need to correct myself when I was wrong by saying that Jared Kellenick was the greatest baseball player to have ever existed or will ever exist. And I, now, after this win streak with Kellenick coming back, I, I hope that it's not just the right field job has been turned back over to Kellenic. I don't I don't know. He's had a good season, obviously. I, I don't mean, know. He's, he's gonna play mostly left field, won't he? It was where or, he was playing previously. I mean, Kid Marlowe has had a nice season and all. I feel like we we probably need to calm down, especially I looked at went and looked at the Rainier's stats to see where Sam Hay, Onofrio Hagerty ranked. And he was dramatically more effective at AAA than Kid Marlowe was. Was he? Dramatically. Call him up. Call him up. He's had a but, great run here. Had a terrific at bat tonight with the bases meant, loaded. To I was like, wait, I I would just like to see some Canzone out there as well. I don't want him to be completely pulled into the lineup. I don't think we're at risk of that. I mean, the one thing is that tonight made clear is that like the Mariners have are a little lefty heavy. That would be the case for Hagerty coming back up because they started Canzone originally in the lineup. They had to play one of their lefties and then brought in both Ford and Marlowe because of injuries and ended up with like a lot of lefties against a left-handed starting pitcher, which probably wasn't the reason they struggled offensively, but it didn't help. So we'll see though. I mean, ultimately it'll probably be good. It'll probably be good to bring Kellenic back and to have, have another bat in the lineup. Um, 
And the way that Scott Service has treated this lineup, basically just kind of moving players up and down based upon who's hot. And I'm I'm sure that's probably the analytic way to approach it. Um, you're skeptical about that? I don't know that that is. I mean, the analytic way to approach it is to have your best hitters as high as possible. It is, but, you know, the player's ability doesn't change that much over time. I mean, I don't think that Jose Caballero is going to be leading off necessarily. It's sort of like combination of, I I don't know. It's kind of worked out. It's definitely worked out. Rolling with who's hot. And so if Kalanick starts and he's hitting in the seven or eight hole or whatever, I think that's probably the right place. And he'll have the ability to earn his way back up through the lineup um, rather than just being immediately slotted in. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, also just there's a lot of good bats right now and you know, having a, a strong bat at the bottom half, a third of the order is, is not such a bad thing. Just seeing that they've averaged six runs per game in August, mostly without, almost, I think completely without Kellenic, right? Is like, it just, it, it makes me a little nervous. I think your correlation is not causation. You know, they also took Colton Wong off the roster at around that time. I think that might've had more to do with that as I look at his 33 OPS plus, <laughs> which is good because it was minus a lot of the year. Can, can I give another perspective on management? Everybody was so upset about off-season transactions, right? And where the Mariners are at, again, very pro-management this week. I mean, they are, they are probably a little too pro-management. But those signings, when you sign players to one-year deals or whatever, Colton Wong was traded for, right, with one year left on his deal? Correct. Your ability and your flexibility with the roster to move on from those players is significantly higher. When you sign a player to an eight-year or a 10-year deal, that player's on your roster forever for the rest of human history. So it's part of basically like you don't need to hit on those players as much, even also with young players. Like, I mean, Canzone's looking very good right now, but it's kind of like if they don't, they can just send Canzone down and still control him for a long period of time. It's not a really expensive proposition. So... I think the way that they maintain roster flexibility, even though the Mariners' overall talent wasn't necessarily that amazing, like they needed all the talent that they have on the roster to be performing at a pretty high level to be at the place that they're at right now. But they haven't committed to so much money aside from Julio, say. They haven't committed a lot of money to almost anybody on the roster. And it's not like there's no black hole or anything like that where you're just like, there's... $250 $250 million tied up in a player who's not very good at the moment. So roster flexibility is something that they have had and they can just turn around and say, hey, we're going to release Colton Wong because it doesn't matter that much. Well, should we talk about tying up a bunch of their money in a potential free agent this offseason? Because there was some news about Shohei Otani who has been linked at times with the Mariners. Uh, he's finished pitching this season due to a UCL tear in his right pitching elbow could attempt to treat the injury with rest in PRP before considering surgery. That's what he did when this happened previously in 2018. Uh, there's also, you know, I, I read UCLA tear, UCL tear, not UCLA tear. And my first thought was, oh, therefore you have to have Tommy John surgery, right? And be out, you know, a year plus. And it does appear there are some surgical alternatives to that as well that are possibilities for Otani. So it's not necessarily that that happens, but the likelihood of Shohei Otani pitching in the 2024 season is 
now a lot lower than it seemed to be a week ago. And that seems to be great news for the Seattle Mariners' chances of signing Shohei Otani. That is a very rosy view of things. Matt, Matt <laughs> Kelkins in the Seattle Times beat me to this tag. But like the Mariners, relative to most teams, need Shohei's arm less than most of them. And if his price is no longer, you know, historic, twice as much as any contract in baseball history, it I mean, makes it, it a bit more be, plausible for Judge them. get paid? Like the... 360 million. Yeah, That's all wrote a billion. Yeah. Aaron Judge only got paid 360 million. I'm pretty sure I read that in the story I was reading earlier today. I don't think that's right. In fact, I'm almost certain that was right. I don't think his contract is. Yeah, it's nine years, 360 million. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're saying that it would be if it was in the like 400 million range? Uh, Mike Trout something. is still the largest contract at 426.5 million. So if it was in the 400 million range, 350 million or something, you're saying that the Mariners are more likely to consider it? For sure. Obviously, they're more likely to consider it. I mean, again, I. And not that they I, wouldn't want him as a pitcher. Like, obviously, they would eventually want him as a pitcher. It would allow them the potential to deal some of, you know, some of their surplus of pitching talent at some point, which would be great. But a lot of other teams probably, you know, the the ability to both hit and pitch is a bigger factor for them than it is for the Mariners. Hell yeah. I'm not saying the odds <laughs> go from 1% to 90%, but I think the odds are higher than they were a week ago. Okay. That's awesome. I do love the idea that it's just like, well, Shohei can't pitch now. Let's freaking go. <laughs> uh, if you look at the timeline, if Otani is forced to undergo Tommy John surgery, that previously he underwent that on October 1st, 2018, returned as a DH for the Angels on May 7th, 2019. Didn't pitch at all that season, obviously. Didn't pitch until 2020. An even quicker turnaround for Bryce Harper because the Phillies played into the World Series last year. He didn't undergo Tommy John surgery until November 23rd. He returned as a DH on May 2nd. So that's okay. the kind of timeline that would potentially allow Otani to return even if he needed Tommy John surgery as a hitter by the start of the regular season. Yeah. So uh, I, I I don't quite have as rosy of a view as the, of you at... As you, you definitely don't have quite as rosy a view of me. <laughs> as you of the situation. I just, I'm not sure if it's going to change things as drastically as it may seem. I still think there's a I don't think it's going to change things drastically. I think it changes it incrementally. I, I think the issue is the contract will probably still be the biggest in baseball history or close to the biggest in baseball history. If that's what Shohei wants. Now, the other alternative is he takes a shorter term deal, looks to reprove his ability to play both ways and then sign the bigger contract in a couple of years. There's no way that happens. Or a deal with an out of some sort after two years. That's not happening, but that's really nice that you think that that might. You're like, hey, what if the trend of all of baseball changes? But the trend I mean, of all of baseball isn't players signing after they've suffered in serious injury. I suppose so, but like the deals aren't getting shorter. Right they now. might. I. You're like, hey, I just got injured. I would, I would like to have less long-term stability. That's not what somebody thinks. I think there's a lot of players who look to recoup their value via short-term deals. I'll be very impressed if that's the case. But at the same time, I just don't think 
if you're one of the teams, if you're the Yankees who obviously have money and you've just had basically your worst season for the last three decades, having adding a Shohei both interest-wise and on the field-wise to your roster is a pretty big deal. If you're the Padres who are still trying to get through, trying to break through, if you're the Dodgers, say the Dodgers don't win the World Series this year, a Shohei is going to look really nice. If you're the Giants and you're like, wow, we were just above 500 last year, adding Shohei pushes us past or up to the same level of the Dodgers. What, what you're not realizing is the desperation factor in making free agent signings. And the Mariners are, I guess, Shohei-wise, in a little bit less of a bad position because management, maybe rightfully so, I mean, they would be wrong to not try to sign Shohei, but like they, they are viewing this season. We know exactly what the Mariners management is looking at right now. They are saying they are patting themselves. This is, again, this is an opposite take from the earlier pro-management take that I gave. Mariners management is patting themselves on the fucking backs right now. They are saying, we waited this out. We rolled into this year. We didn't make a bunch of free agent moves. We we went and found a couple of players on expiring deals. We made some small deals. And we're in first place in the American League West. Because the core is this young pitching staff, and it's Julio. And that's kind of, it's that's who this roster is, and that's who they're building around. They're like, if we go out and spend all this money, we might still be the same team as we were beforehand. Like that is, they told us their mentality. So I, I think the desperation, the Mariners will have no desperation depending on what happens in the next month. I think you're underestimating the desperation of you've never fucking made the world series in franchise history. And you're, you're close enough to taste it now. <sighs> that is, I, I'm like last really, year. They weren't last year. They really were still always way. I'm very skeptical that that is the mentality. Other San Diego, like other teams have that mentality. I have, th- nothing in the John Stanton tenure has indicated to me that that is how he views. Nothing in the John Stanton tenure has been them going twenty and five in a month, twenty and six in a month. I mean, I get that, but again, they're just, we're in unprecedented territory here. They are okay? riding high. If you are Mariners front office, if you are Mariners executives, you are just like I fucking did it. Like I, this is this is the roster, and they did that. Why would we not run it back with the same roster? Why would we go out and spend $40 million a year that we don't need to spend? That That is what I have seen as, I, again, it is a very rosy perspective that you think that this injury will mean anything for uh, whether they actively try to sign Shohei or not. But First off, I think they're going to actively try to sign him. Whether they bid the most is a different question. Those are two totally different things. Words have meanings. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> words have meanings. <laughs> Wait, hold on. The new, see what new see what slogan said. Oh man, I have to log in. This is the owner's suite ticket. Yeah. You just received it via email? I, I literally, like, 11.40 p.m. or whatever. I Sean can't wait. Stanton cordially <laughs> invites you to join him. Wow. <laughs> For an open roundtable of feedback on current and future transactions. <laughs> as in related to Italian-Americans on the roster. <laughs> A little bit shocking. It's so specific. <laughs> And they said that to everyone. <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> f- 
feedback on the current value of Shohei Otani relative to the current Mariners roster. One ten p.m. T-Mobile Park. Thanks All that was in there. Thanks. <laughs>